lot of stuff to cover here today. A lot of notes that I actually took. Uh, first off, Heather's back in Portugal. She spent time in LA and then back in Austin and got back Saturday. And under the circumstances, she is, uh, I think she's doing okay. I think she's handling it all right. Um, I appreciate all the uh, emails and notes from you guys about her and just about situation. It was very nice. Uh, the crazy thing about Heather was she, you know, I told you the story last week, but she was in LA and then she flew back to Austin and then she flew back on an overnight flight to Lisbon, got in at like, you know, 8 a.m. And that was last Saturday, five days ago. And we were having a Christmas party scheduled for Saturday night. And normally we just cancel the Christmas party. And I didn't even know if Heather would be back in time. And I just didn't know if I could throw a, a big party uh, myself. And the thing is, normally, you know, we invite all our friends. We have one every year. And like half the people say they can go. Half the people are going away or doing something else. Can't make it. But this year, everybody said yes. So there were going to be like 40 to 50 people there. And, you know, our house is like, I don't know, 1,700 square feet. And it's going to be tight with seats and just, you know, everything else. And plus I had to like, you know, I was dealing with Sasha and Oscar myself because Heather was away dealing with everything. And I had to do all the, you know, prep for the party. Anyway, Heather, obviously we're going to cancel the party, except there's one factor that Sasha, who made us get the more expensive Christmas tree, not the ugly one that we'd get and give back um, from this service. She wanted to like get a real Christmas tree. She was super enthusiastic about decorating it, mostly for the party since we're going to London for actual Christmas. And she even like wrapped all these fake presents to put them under the tree to make it look more festive. She decorated all the lights, did everything in all the rooms. I mean, Sasha's really into it. She's almost 12. She just loves it for some reason. And so we just didn't have the heart to cancel it on her because she would have been really upset. So Heather, <laughs> knowing this, she's like, I think we have to do it for Sasha. And so I said, all right, if you're up for it. So she arrives at 8 a.m. after like a week of grief and like just dealing with so much logistical shit and flying to Austin, seeing her dad who's sick and dealing with her mom. And suddenly, you know, 40, 50 people are coming over in a small apartment. Uh, I had done a decent job of getting the food ready and cooked a beef stew and all that was good. But, you know, she crashed on the couch for like three, four hours. And then everyone started coming over at four. And it was kind of a rager. Uh, the other thing was I wasn't boozing either. So it was sort of like, actually didn't really matter. I had this kombucha I bought that has no sugar in it. And I make my own kombucha, but that's like more, has some sugar and it's more explosive when you open it. This is just the store-bought, very, very dry, no sugar kombucha. And you can just drink it all night. It's like drinking water. And it kind of tastes like alcohol. With the, I mean, it kind of tastes like wine, but just without the alcohol. And you know, I had like a glass or two of wine over the course of things. But um, I was hosting a giant blowout where there's kids, there's 20 kids in the house running, screeching down the hallways. I found some little kids in our bedroom. I had to kick them out. These like four, four and five year olds, like jumping in our bed. <laughs> I just said, Guys, you got to get out of here. Close that door. Um, and just, you know, all sorts of chaos. But it was it was a rager. People were drunk, had a good time. Everyone liked it. The food was good. If I say so myself, the stew came out perfect. I had sort of marinated it overnight and started cooking it at 9 a.m cooking the meat. It's very tender. Perfect. Um, I made a salad. We bought cheese from this good cheese shop. People brought over stuff. Food was good. The party was good. Everybody was stayed kind of late. Actually did a cleanup at like 1am while Heather was uh, having her sort of a bachelorette style hang with a couple of uh, late, late uh, stayers. Um, and I think it was pretty cathartic for her and, and everybody. And you know, and it was, it was a good party. It was really good. And, you know, Heather was kind of destroyed the next day and, you know, kind of came down from the whole thing, but uh, Sasha had a good time. So that's how we dealt with it. We had a blowout Christmas party um, that night. And I think Heather is still not completely over the jet lag and the exhaustion from all of it, but, uh, but it was actually kind of nice. Um, all right. Well, that was that just an update. She's, you know, she's suffering like you'd expect, but she's doing all right. I mean, she's, she's you know she's dealing with it um one thing we talked about was you know her mom uh was extremely self-sufficient person she helped a lot of people she didn't really want help from anybody that was to her detriment and maybe it even caused you know you know some people that you're with you know the ideal balance is 
you give and you receive, you know, you, you may give more than you receive, but you receive something and she really didn't receive much. She was mostly on the giving end. Uh, the worst is when you only can receive, there's a lot of people that, you know, they just take and take and take. Um, that's the worst. The best is balance, but she was definitely on the giving end. And I think, you know, she kind of did it her way and, and, uh, went out quickly and without the whole hospital and people fawning over her and all of that. So, I mean, it was, it was kind of the way she, I mean, if she probably wouldn't have thought about this consciously, but, or maybe who knows, but that she would have wanted it that, you know, basically she died and nobody really had to fret over her. I mean, obviously people are sad, but you know, her affairs were in good order and she just made it easy on everybody, which again, that might've been to her detriment living like that, but certainly made it easy on everybody else. Um, okay. Uh, so that's that. Um, one thing that was kind of good news on Tuesday morning. So there, I, uh, I was talking about this more on my sports podcast, but I have my prime time fantasy team, the one that you pay $1,700 for. And I had won it in 2021, 2022. I wanted to keep it going, but I made some really dumb lineup decisions, really nutless monkey, cowardly stuff. I did looking at fantasy pros rankings and changing things at the last minute and all this dumb stuff. And I really put the team in a, it was one in six team, one in five, you know, it was one in five start the year. And I just made some really unforced errors to it. And it was pretty much drawing dead. It was in last place in points through week five. Uh, but I won the last eight games. I didn't win get up there on record, but I needed sort of a miracle the last week. I was within like, I don't know, 50 points of the guy ahead of me. And the guy ahead of me, I feel bad for him, but he he started Josh Dobbs over Trevor Lawrence. For you guys who aren't into fantasy football, Trevor Lawrence is an obvious play over Josh Dobbs, just that Lawrence had an ankle injury and was facing a tough defense. Dobbs was facing a weak defense. Dobbs did nothing, got replaced during the game. He had injuries, two players, Tyree Kill, Nico Collins. And somehow, miraculously, I passed him and I made the playoffs. So it's 1100 bucks back for my 1700 and I'm in like sort of the big playoffs for the big money, which is a long shot, but it's like house money now. Like I totally didn't expect to make it and I made it. Now, why am I telling you this on the non-sports podcast? Well, I actually learned a lot this football season. I actually learned a little bit about myself. Um, I love fantasy sports. I love this complex thing that you have to apply yourself to your understanding and your instincts and that there's a real, you know, win or loss, monetary payout or monetary loss. And I just love this. I love applying myself to it. I love doing Sudoku puzzles, but Sudoku puzzles are pure logic. It's not as dynamic as, you know, when there's an element of luck in it, like fantasy sports or real life sports, I think it makes it even more a deeper skill than when it's pure logic. You, you, it's ironic, right? You'd think like chess or Sudoku or something where it's kind of a pure logical game takes the most intelligence. And when there's luck involved, where there's funny bounces and referee calls and all the you know, injuries, like in football, fantasy baseball, fantasy football, that has more luck. But I think it's actually the opposite. I think it takes a higher degree of intelligence or whatever you want to call it to manage uncertainty, luck, where there's skill and luck, where there's unpredictability, where there's uncertainty. I think it takes a higher level of intelligence to do well at that than it does in the just very deductive type of endeavors like chess or Sudoku, where it's just complete logic. I think it, it's certainly harder for AI. Like AI will crush you in chess, will do the Sudoku instantly. Um, it has no, it's very easy to build a computer program um, to solve deductive problems, you know, where it's this follows from this, follows from this, follows from this. It is much harder, would be much harder to build an AI that could, you know, be beat the best players in the world in fantasy baseball or fantasy football um, or the stock market investing and all of this stuff. Stock market's even harder. Um, and we can get into why that would be, but because I mean, there's, you know, with George Soros, say what you want about him. He was a, a good investor. Um, talked about reflexivity, like your choices themselves create results. The beliefs of investors also create results themselves. The behavior creates an effect on the market that has another effect. So it's not just figuring out what people are going to do. It's figuring out how what people are going to do is going to affect things and how you even thinking about things differently or the way people think about things and the result of the, what they do is going to then affect again what they think and what they do again. And there's these second, third, fourth, nth order effects that are very hard. And, and with the market, it's, you know, 
because prices are based on people's opinions, not, you know, it's not like fantasy sports where the games happen as they do without regard to what the fantasy you know, world thinks. I mean, I guess you could say that if the betting world makes somebody a 14 point favorite instead of a 10 point favorite, that the players know the point spread, the coaches and the organization knows the point spread and that could have an effect. So there, there may be some smaller effect, but, um, but it's very debatable whether that really affects the the game itself, but in the stock market, obviously the, the short-term performance, the stock price affects the CEO, affects the algorithms, the trade, it affects everything. So there's this reflexivity built into the markets that I think is more complex. But the bottom line is that any of this kind of stuff, uh, sports or markets are vastly more complex than chess and Sudoku. And that I just realized like, I love fantasy sports. I love it. I like sports and I just like applying myself to it. And even though I'm, you know, quote, retired from actually providing sports, I mean, I'm not retired. I still do uh, realmansports.com, but realmansports.com is not really, you know, RotoWire where I'm trying to sell you information that's going to be actionable. It's more my own take on things and some of it may be actionable, some, some of it not, but it's not really the point of it. I'm still not sure exactly what the final iteration of that is. I just realized like, I really love this. I love fantasy sports. I didn't love necessarily providing this particular kind of product. I'd much rather just do my own thing, which I was mostly doing with RotoWire at the end anyway, just kind of talking about my own observations. But um, but I found something about myself. But the other thing I found out, and this is sort of goes back to why I'm telling you that I made the playoffs, is that I was really good at this, like maybe 15 years ago when I was just doing it. And then we started running RotoWire and I was deep into it. I was winning like the Yahoo leagues that we're in with all the other um you know other experts i was like routinely winning like so many leagues and uh for like the last 10 to 15 years of being at rotowire i i was decent but i wasn't that good and i think what happened was i kind of got captured by this midwit sense of oh the stats the the base case the the base rate the massy peabody numbers that are adjusted for turnovers or the most important things that win football games, the on average expected outcomes, expected return, all that, all those concepts. And I thought, wow, look at these guys. They've built these systems, these machines that can measure like what's most likely to happen. And I got kind of pushed off my, I used to win the, uh, the staff picks, the, the spread picking thing every year almost to like 2006. And then I won it like once or twice the rest of the way. Um, I just got pushed off my, instincts, my sense of judgment about these things. And this is what I was devoted to. This is the thing I was studying. I mean, part of it might've been that I had a kid and, you know, relationship and was traveling more and blah, blah. But I don't really think that was the bigger part. I think the bigger part, or maybe that was part of why I started outsourcing my, you know, my judgment to these heuristics and these systems. And I was railing against them, writing why they're bullshit because I would not do as well. And I would trust one, I get annoyed. But even though I was complaining about it, I was still sort of in it. And it's not just the sort of the spreadsheet jockeys that I was looking at their work. It was, it was also heuristics, you know, things like, Oh, well, Monday night home underdogs, you know, the old school gambler stuff, a Monday night home dog is always a good value and blah, blah, all this bullshit, basically like all of this sort of trying to generally understand a game rather than to specifically understand a game, trying to do what's right on average thinking, well, it's 50, 50. So if I can get it 55%, that's great. So on average, this comes in 58%. So I'm going to use this. Trying to play the averages, trying to bit play the base case rather than honing in on the specific event. Because when you play like a base case thing, when you say, well, on average, teams in this situation cover the point spread 58% of the time. Well, 42% they don't cover. And so is this one in the 42 or the 58? Where you're like, I don't know. So I'm going to bet on the 58 side. But what you're saying is this one may well be firmly in the 42 for other reasons that we don't know, that we're not aware of. And yet you're still putting the donking into the other side of it um, because generally that's the case. You're not, you, you may be just completely wrong on this particular game because it's not, it's one of them that fits into the 42, but you are just like, well, on average, it does this. You, you have no opinion on this particular outcome. You have no observation about it. You have no intelligence on it. You're literally just trying to be a robot and say, well, I don't know, so I'm going to do this. Now, that works if you really know nothing, right? Like for fantasy basketball, Sasha and I drafted a team. It's in third in our league, but it's in, I think, 19th overall or something like that. 
300 teams. So it's doing well. Um, I use the average draft position, the uh, NFBKC, the basketball list. And I just kind of, we kind of picked, let her pick from among it. I really outsourced that because I didn't, I haven't followed basketball in like eight years. So I really needed a crutch to use a base rate to use. And that's fine. If you don't know um, anything about anything, go ahead and use the market price. Go ahead and use a crutch, a heuristic, whatever. But if you know about something, if you watch football every Sunday, why the fuck are you even watching football? If you're just going to use the point spread to make your decisions, the expected point score, the net YPA, some statistic, why are you even watching? Why don't you just get the AI to do it for you? Why don't you just get the computer to do it for you? you don't, why are you even bothering? If I'm bothering, if I'm watching, if I'm absorbing all this information, and if I've done it for 45 years, the NFL, if I can't put that to use, why am I playing? Right? Why don't we all just outsource it to uh, some metrics? And so I, I, I had been doing that, um, and I was a much worse player than I originally was. Now you could say, well, also not just the kid and the relationship. It could have been, you know, maybe the competition got better. I don't really think so. I just think like I gave away. Maybe after a cold, everyone gets hot and cold, you know, different times. Maybe after a cold streak, I started maybe having some self-doubt and I gave away my experience-based intuitions and intelligence and deep understanding. There's, I've mentioned this before, but there's the idea of the other side of complexity and how people pay, you know, CEOs or consultants a lot of money. A lot of it's grift, but some of it's not, you know, if you have somebody who can just see things, um, Basically, when you when you start off learning something, it seems kind of simple. Like, oh yeah, the NFL just, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I'm on a streak. I've won, you know, sixty percent through six weeks. I'm awesome against the spread. And then after doing it for a couple of years, you realize, oh, it's harder than that. It's really hard to beat the rake against the spread. It takes work, you know. It takes understanding of the game and whatever. And then so you 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 realize the NFL is a complex system. It's hard to beat. So at first, it seems simple. You win a bunch, maybe you lose a bunch at first, but it just seems simple. Like, oh, it's just, you just got to do this. And then when you get to understand it more, you're like, oh, this is complex. But when you really get deep into it and you really understand it, then you start to understand how to see things simply again. You, you have a few ways of looking at it, not just heuristics, but like just a, a way of looking at something complex and breaking down some simple takeaways from it um, that you can grasp because you have experience and you've, applied your intelligence to it over a long period of time. And sort of the other side of complexity. And I felt like I was probably there, but maybe I had a cold streak and I gave it away and just outsourced myself to these models and these spreadsheets. Um, and that was, that was a big mistake. So this, this year I kind of felt like I learned to trust myself after making the most disastrous mistake in week five, all these last second switches, looking at fantasy pros, I call it fantasy midwits or the average of a bunch of people who submit their rankings to the site that aggregates them. And I was like, well, fantasy pros likes this guy more than this. So I'll switch it. I mean, how, how pathetic is that? You know, and I'm someone who knows like, you know, I get it. If you just don't pay attention to football, go ahead and use something like that. But I actually knew, you know, I don't know the answers. I don't have a crystal ball. So I, I made those mistakes so badly this year and it was actually good because it really, made me reflect and, and shine a light on like the cowardice and the nutlessness of what I was doing. And I was sort of like dreading, I wanted, I wanted to get it right. You know, I, I know that the sort of probabilistic thinking of like, well, I have a 68% chance to get it right. 32% to get it wrong. And then you feel good about that. And all these midwits tell themselves, well, it was, I got it wrong, but it was good process. You know, I was on the 68% side. So what can you do? You know, you can't be perfect. And it was only 32% that it went against me. So I, I'm fine. Right. And they don't realize that like, those numbers are bullshit. You know, you're just saying, you're just using that to make yourself feel better. But the only thing that really measures process is long-term results. So if you get it wrong, you got it wrong. There's no uh, appealing to process. So there's this sort of anxiety about wanting to get things right. And one way to uh, assuage it is to lean on some process that you're just can, you know, oh, the process was good. So I don't have to worry if I get it wrong. Uh, another one could be, you know, those heuristics like Monday night home dogs or whatever, anything to resolve doubt, anything to, to, to resolve uncertainty and to feel good about your decision. And I started to realize, I started to see the fallacy in the probabilistic thinking because the probabilities themselves were based on assumptions that were not that solid. Uh, and I was sort of like caught in between that and then these heuristics. And I was just sort of sensing, like having a sense of dread that I was going to blow it, that I was going to make the wrong decision. 
for my lineups and just be like, ah, I fucked it up. I trusted fantasy pros or I trusted the net YPA or the, the implied totals for the two teams or whatever I trusted, whatever, you know, was the, the thing that made me the, the cause of the, but for cause, or maybe the proximate cause I should say of my decision, final decision to start QBX over QBY. And, uh, and I had this just feeling of like worrying about getting it wrong. And after I fucked it up so badly, the rest of the year, I was just like, every time I got that feeling, I just thought, you know what? Fuck that. This is my decision. This is my call based on my best intuition. I don't have a great basis for it. I'm just going to really kind of look at the choices and try to decide. I can have a justification later. Oh, they're facing an easier team or a team that was, gave up more points to quarterbacks or whatever you want to justify it as. That doesn't really matter. You can be the post hoc justification could be anything. It doesn't matter. Right. You, you could ask Tom Brady, why did you throw the pass to this guy instead of that guy? And it doesn't really matter what he says, because in the moment he did it for reasons he probably doesn't even know. He just knows when the bullets are flying, where to get the ball to. He can explain it to himself later. It's not really the same thing as at the time. And I'm trying to just tune into that. What is my intuition on this? I've watched the games. I've I have a great, you know, encyclopedic history in my brain of football. What what do I think is going to happen? And Okay, this is what I think. This is my best take based on my intuition. I can explain it later. I'll look at facts. I'll look at the opponents and I'll look at all the stuff. And I don't want to make the decision based on that. I just want to have that in the database, in sort of the information base before I make the decision totality of it based on my instinct. And I'm not really sure why, what the factor is. I don't want there to be this factor caused it. I want it to be uh, a black box. I want it to be sort of, um, okay, I'm absorbing the information. I'm going to make a decision. And and not know why, not have a, well, this is the reason I had to do it. Just be like, I see the information and I trust myself to get it right. And it's my call. It's my decision. It's not fantasy midwits decision. It's not net YPA or some stats decision, some algorithm, some base rate calculation. It's just my call. And if I get it wrong, it's a my mistake and I'll live with it. I make the call, I absorb the information, I make the call and I make the mistake. And if it goes well, like last week where I started Evan Ingram over Kenneth Walker, I don't know what fantasy midwits had. I won't even look at it anymore. Um, and Evan Ingram had two touchdowns in a big game, and I won by 11 points over the guy who I was competing with who had horrible luck. Um, and I got the money, and I'm in the playoffs, and I feel good about it. And now I'm realizing it's the whole key to life. Trust yourself. I had lunch with a guy, a friend of mine, this guy Brian, who I've met because he bought property in uh, – Lisbon. He's based in the West Coast. And uh, he was a friend of Heather's when she lived in Argentina. Uh, and he's a super nice guy. Uh, really just friendly, easygoing uh, guy that I, I like hanging out with him. And he's sort of a real estate entrepreneur. And he buys distressed properties, properties at auctions. He just has an eye for um, the opportunities that come around. You know, he's not just, he's an, you know, sort of a real estate entrepreneur. And I was just thinking about it because someone like that, you just have to trust your judgment, trust your instincts. Oh, this building seems like a good value in the condition it's in and the price it's in and the issues that it has. You know, it's not something that just people like that who make decisions, you know, trust their judgment. And it's got to be for your whole life. You know, what do I really want to do? How do I want to handle the situation? I don't know. There's no pros and cons. There's no base rate. There's no, it's just... How do I feel about it? Let me just really like connect to that as best I can. And if I get it wrong, it's my error. The idea that like you're scared to get it wrong. No, get it wrong. Get it fucking wrong. It's like I, uh, I Wu Wei, the Chinese dissident, he said, you know, if, if I'm going to say something, I, you know, I must be wrong. I must be the one in the wrong. I must be willing to be wrong. And it, it's weird. It's not the same thing as censorship and, you know, being able to say your view, even if it's out, out of step with the consensus but it's related. You know, it's related to that. Um, just be wrong, but make it your call. Don't be contrarian to be contrarian. Don't do the thing that's less likely on purpose. Don't get caught up in the genius mode where you have to, you know, shock the world with every pick you make, you know, don't be like that. That's, that's basically just doing the bidding of the algorithm, but to the opposite, right? I mean, if you're, if you're reacting to something and fading it every time, you're still using it, just ignore it just ignore the outside influences and just trust yourself completely, deeply, whatever it is, just get it to what you think is true, what you think is best, as best as you can ascertain and go with it. 
and then make the fucking mistake. Be wrong and be like, yeah, that was my mistake. I got that wrong. And so I made the playoffs with that attitude. I got a little bit lucky, um, but I just, that's it. I, I, if, when I forget, I got to remind myself. And if you guys see me doing that, being a nutless monkey and deferring to some heuristic or some algorithm or some whatever it is, remind me because it's important. It's really, really important. All right. That's that. Uh, there was this whole Harvard plagiarism, wokeism thing going on. I think I talked a little bit about last week, Harvard, um, the Harvard Penn and a bunch of other presidents were called before Congress, MIT, as to why um, they were um, not uh, clamping down on free speech when that free speech was um, arguably, I don't, I don't want to say that it is exactly what it means, but you know, there, it, there was an interpretation that students were uh, for the uh, genocide of the Jews. I don't think they were saying we're for the genocide of the Jews. I think they were saying from the river to the sea, which some people say that's what it really means. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I don't read minds. I don't know what they actually intended, but either way they were called in front of that. And of course, like I'm free speech absolutist. I think students should be able to say that as long as they're not like in people's faces, like stopping them and making it hell for them. But if they're just chanting that in one part of the campus in a protest, I think that's okay. But I also think it's okay for people to be chanting uh, things that, you know, maybe will be sensitive to other people too, you know, that, that have been clamped down. Um, and when I say, okay, I don't think it's good. I don't think it's nice, but I don't think that we should be policing what causes people are allowed to stand for unless again, it rises to harassment. That's what those presidents mostly said. And I actually mostly agreed with their testimony. I, for me, the problem with their testimony was um, it was totally hypocritical because they were like, oh, that's a microaggression against this trans person, against this black person, against this gay person. So every, you know, every little tiny thing that was nothing was a microaggression. But now um, these things that are, you know, aggressing or I didn't think they're aggressing, but are, you know, denigrating some of the things dear to the Jewish people um, that was allowed. So it was the hypocrisy. I would have just allowed all of it. You know, I think that... Uh, this woman, I should get her name because I, I quote tweeted her and it's very smart. This woman, um, Batya Unger Sargon, who uh, was interviewed by Glenn Greenwald, basically said like, look, um, the university system is deeply corrupt and it's not really the anti-Semitism that we're seeing, but anti-Americanism. He said, it's a big mistake for Jews to insist that no, we belong with the oppressed, but the oppressed, the Jews and everybody else belongs with those fighting for this great nation with all the others hated by the woke elite. And she said the, you know, basically like um, there's plenty of anti-Semitism on the left, but um, but basically like um, if you're sort of protecting yourself against speech to that effect, you're going against sort of the First Amendment and, um, you know, and, and America, you're going against um, what the country was founded on. And so it's like... Um, this woman is, you know, firmly for the uh, eradication of Hamas and the invasion of, of Gaza and all that. Uh, but she, uh, you know, was basically saying like, um, it's basically saying like, you know, don't, uh, you know, don't side with the people that are like trying to silence people, you know, the Bill Ackman's trying to um, use power to sort of squelch free speech just because it defends you. You know, it's, it's the problem is that these universities are corrupt and they, they um, have this sort of mandate that was um, anti-American and, you know, American Jews are Americans and, and we should defend free speech. We can say you're a bunch of bigots and we don't agree with this speech, but um, look, some people, hold views that we don't like that are bigoted. Now it's another thing when it, it gets to action. If you assault somebody or something else, that's a, that's a different point. And you can draw the line, you know, what, what comes actually constitutes assault and harassment versus, you know, shitty speech. But the real issue was that these presidents were clamping down and deplatforming and expelling people um, for just the most minor microaggressions against all these other groups. And now they're pretending to be pro-free speech when it comes to Jews. And the, and the answer is not to protect the Jews in the same microaggression way that they protected all these other groups. It's to say, um, how about we allow free speech back on campus and we can debate the merits of these views and, and not, you know, expel people because they microaggress because they use the wrong pronouns, all this 
all of this. So I, that's kind of my view. And Bill Ackman, who you know is now uh, getting all these hedge fund friends and his money, he's a billionaire, uh, to stop donating. You know, he's kind of doing the same sort of cancellation um, on behalf of his group that was so pernicious on behalf of other groups. And so we're we're sort of going backwards. But I don't mind seeing the hypocrites get what's coming to them. But I I kind of agree with Batya Unger Sargon. That's how you say your na- her name. That that's not really and, and Greenwald too. That that's not really the way the way to go. Um, and the there's a funny thing because the Harvard president Claudine something I can't remember her name. She uh, she she apparently only published eleven papers, and she's president of Harvard. And you think somebody who was president of Harvard would have a more distinguished academic track record? And it turns out at least five of those papers there was serious plagiarism. And the Harvard board or whatever is uh, standing behind her regardless. And all these people are up in arms. Like she plagiarized. Like she's not only unqualified, but she's phony. She's plagiarized. But I actually see that differently a little bit. I don't think the plagiarism is a big deal uh, because I think that like this is a completely fraudulent endeavor. Harvard's fraudulent. The whole project is fraudulent. This woke DEI uh, ideology is fraudulent. So if you cheated in a fraudulent system, it's hard for me to get worked up. It would be like some someone saying like in professional wrestling, like Hulk Hogan cheated. He took steroids for professional wrestling. Well, we know professional wrestling is fake. Well, there's some interesting thoughts about that too that I read. Uh, we know professional wrestling's fake. So if you roid it up to cheat in professional wrestling, who cares, right? DEI-driven Harvard ideology is fake. It's a fake system. These papers and gender studies or whatever the hell she was doing are fake. It's, a, it's not real scholarship. It's phony scholarship. So if she cheated uh, to publish things in this phony area of non-real scholarship, it's not physics or math or anything groundbreaking or anything real, uh, it's good for her. She she didn't waste time. She just uh, copied somebody else's fake bullshit and published it as her own. Like It's kind of like uh, Carissa Thompson, which she made up the coach speak that you always get at halftime and everyone jumped to, oh my God, that's that's an insult to journalism. All these like shit journalists who, you know, just either were completely for the narrative when it counted or just mouth pieties that are in step with their tribe all the time, whether it's sports or, or non-sports. And they're so up in arms that Carissa Thompson would make up coach speak at halftime. The coach didn't want to talk to them. They, they only have a few minutes at halftime to talk to their team and get ready for the second half. And the audience doesn't care. Oh, coach says, you know, we need to take care of the ball more and tackle better. I mean, just she would just make up something. And good for her, right? Like why annoy a coach who isn't going to give you anything important anyway? The, the audience doesn't care. They wouldn't, none the wiser. None of the coaches complained about it because it saved them time. And she wasn't saying anything, attributing anything to them that was controversial in the least. Um, it was only she who admitted it, that no one would have ever known if she did admit it on a podcast. It was a bullshit job. It was a fake endeavor. And so she made it up. Good for her. Good for uh I don't know why I can't remember her name, Claudine, whatever her name is, the president of Harvard for plagiarizing those papers in a fake system. It's fraud upon fraud upon fraud. Why, why do you care? You know, if, if, it, if Hulk Hogan cheated and took steroids um, in professional wrestling, this is professional wrestling. It's a great uh, post. I think it was Jimmy song um, who made this post talking about kayfabe. Kayfabe is a, a term that, was related to professional wrestling where it's like, are they really fighting when they shout each other down and grab the mic and say, I'm going to get him. He's a weasel. And they have this fake drama with each other. Do they really hate each other? Are they really, you know, talking shit about each other or is it all an act? And they're sort of like, yeah, he's kind of acting, but he kind of does hate that other wrestler. Is it true? Is it false? Are they really fighting? Is there some reality to professional wrestling that they, that he thinks this guy's a fraud? We can't really tell. And it's called kayfabe. It's like fake, real, war. You're like play fighting, but there is animosity, but there isn't, but there is, but there isn't. It's real and fake. It's on the like line in between real and fake. And uh, I think Jimmy Song asked, is all war kayfabe where there's bankers financing these wars and people playing both sides. I saw stuff on World War II where, you know, a lot of the US and British bankers were financing Hitler. They're financing the Nazis. And then um, after World War II, you know, a lot of the uh, Government institutions hired all the best scientists uh, from Nazi Germany and, and Imperial Japan to put them to work, you know, for their purposes. And 
you know, there's money changing hands during all this companies making money off of the war on both sides. And, you know, like there's real victims in these wars, obviously, but like, is the ruling class, is this, you know, the people sort of starting these wars and prosecuting these wars, is there, is there a measure of sort of like, it's a show for everybody else that has real victims, but for a certain class of people, it's just kayfabe. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. And I, I think that about sometimes about this, you know, certainly Ukraine, there's real people dying. I mean, in all these wars, I mean, as far as I can tell, there's hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians dying. And then, you know, in Israel, Gaza, Glenn Greenwald uh, was quoting uh, some Israeli, some Israel supporter, anonymous handle. And he says, I think people should trust the claims of fanatic anonymous Israeli supporters online like you more than the numerous international aid organizations on the ground in Gaza trying to feed people, get them clean water and risking their lives for years of humanitarian relief. As Greenwald's tweet in response to like a pro-Israel account that was anonymous, you know, saying, I don't know, something like we got to kill Hamas, you know, what do you expect, you know, them to do? But I, I quit you the Greenwald because I was sort of like, I don't trust this fanatic Israel guy either, but. I also don't trust these international aid organizations. Like, are they really trying to get food and water? Are they really doing that? I don't know. A lot of these, you know, the WHO, these NGOs during COVID lied like crazy to support Pfizer. I don't know really what they're about. I don't trust the New York Times that reported the story about these aid organizations trying to help people amid all the chaos and horrors. The Israeli government, I certainly don't trust. The Biden administration. I mean, I really just can't separate fact from propaganda at all in this. And, and a guy who I like, a guy who responds to me sometimes, was like, what do you mean you can't? You know, what do you mean you can't? What can't you? I was like, I don't know how many people, the casualty numbers in Gaza, how many of those casualties were Hamas? How many of them were innocent civilians? You know, were they hiding in hospitals? Were they not? Was that just a propaganda thing by the Israeli government? Remember beheaded babies at the start? And that turned out to be fake. I think it was fake. And some people said, well, a lot of the casualties initially were from the IDF coming in and killing the you know, Hamas and they killed some of their own people. Is that true? Did Israel know about it? Somebody made a lot of money shorting the Israeli stock market right before the attack. Somebody knew about it. Um, you know, why didn't the defenses come up? Their defenses are really good in Israel. Why did they not notice for so long? You know, well, the, the Israeli government would never do that. You know, Netanyahu may be a scumbag, but he's not going to do that to his own people. Well, he did experiment on, on them with the Pfizer, you know, I mean, he, Israel was the most highly vaccinated mandated country, maybe in the whole world. And the first one to really get the mandates. And he even said in an interview with Jordan Peterson that, that, you know, they wanted to be the test case for the world. So if he's willing to do that on his people, what else is he willing to do? You know, we don't even know what happened on nine 11, really. We don't even know the extent to which we know they were warned. We don't know the extent to which that was you know, World Trade Center Building 7, how the towers collapsed. We don't know exactly what happened yet. We don't even know what happened with the Kennedy assassination. So the idea that, oh, they would never do something like that, that's that doesn't fly with me at all. That doesn't mean they did that or they knew. It just means the idea that they wouldn't do it to me is bullshit. If they had a strong enough reason in their own minds, they would do it, in my opinion. You know, people are like, oh, they would never cheat an election. Fuck yes, they would cheat on an election. It's just, do they think they can get away with it? You don't think either party would cheat in the election to get its way if they thought they could get away with it? Of course they would. I mean, I think it's naive beyond belief to think they wouldn't cheat. To think, oh, they wouldn't cheat. Cheating's beyond the pale. How could you question? What do you mean? How could you not question? Of course they would cheat. The only question is, do they have the opportunity and the means to do it? That's it. And so, you know, the question of whether Israel allowed this attack to happen, and it's not Israeli people, people who were killed certainly um, didn't allow it to happen. But would the government allow it to happen? Well, is, was there a good enough reason for them to allow it? Is the only question in my mind. There's no moral line that <clears throat> these governments draw. We killed a million people in Iraq for no reason on a total lie. Oh, they would draw a line now. They won't let this happen. You know, when you look at January 6th, the whole we created gain of function. We lied about it. We create we funded these viruses. When one got released from the lab, whether it was accidental or not, I think that's the only question. Obviously, it came from the lab and killed a whole bunch of people. And then we created, a, you know, then we like ventilated them, killed them that way. We lied about early treatments. Why do we lie and not give them antibiotics and not give them vitamin D, not let them have ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, things that seem to work for a lot of uh, alternative healthcare practitioners that swore by it? Why would you let them try it? They said, oh, there's no treatment for this. And then they give them a vaccine. They mandated killing and harming so many people. And this is 
now common knowledge. I mean, you see insurance executives recommending against it. This guy in Singapore just came out and said, I didn't take the booster. I recommend against it. I mean, the, the whole thing is obviously what they wouldn't, oh, they wouldn't do this. They wouldn't let an attack happen on their own people if it made sense. Again, that doesn't mean that I know that it happened that way because maybe it didn't make sense. Maybe it was just really a vicious attack by Hamas alone and had no complicity with anybody else. That's completely plausible to me. And, and that may very well be the fact. I'm just saying the idea that, oh, they would never do it. No way. They would do it. It just depends if it was in their interest or not. And I don't know enough facts for it. So um, that's kind of how I feel about all this stuff. You know, the, the what we don't, is this kayfabe? Do, are people behind the scenes manipulating stuff? There's real victims. You know, in all these wars, there are real victims. I mean, there are bodies and, and you can't hide the bodies. There's probably... Um, you know, some fakery with numbers, but it seems pretty likely that, you know, those buildings in Gaza that were blown up were blown up. I mean, I, I don't know how far they can fake it, actually, to be honest, but I think that's true, you know, but but I sort of avoid opining, taking sides on this because um, it's all, if this is true, this would be bad. That's kind of the way I look at it. And people say, well, I mean, you, you got to take sides. Your, your own government is funding this, you know, I mean, you are, you are part of this. You, the U.S. funds this. And to that, I would say, yeah, I'm against the funding to this. I don't think they should fund in Israel. I don't think they should fund Ukraine. I think they should let the locals handle this. You know, I don't think we should be funding these things at all and, and getting involved. And I don't, you know, I pay taxes because I have to. I don't pay taxes because I want to. I don't support anything this government does, anything. I think, you know, I would be, I would love it if there were no taxes, not just for my own selfish purposes, but for the best, I would love it if they made a new law that said, instead of your taxes going to government programs, they're all just going to be lit on fire. Your money will just get lit on fire. You just delete that money from your account every year and nobody gets it. I would way prefer that than the current situation. So I don't support this at all, but you know, unless I want to, you know, not pay my taxes, then, you know, my money's going to it, but it has nothing to do with my opinion of this, nothing whatsoever. In fact, I'm paying it despite my opinion of this. Secondly, um, if I can't see it on the ground, if I don't know, then then opining on it, it seems kind of stupid. I mean, I, early on in COVID, I was like washing my hands and telling Sasha and Heather to wash their hands when they came home. Like, it's fucking totally wrong. Um, but I was listening to other people that I thought were trustworthy at the time. You know, I didn't even think they were trustworthy, but I thought if everybody's going along with it, it couldn't be this crazy. But it was that crazy. It was ridiculous what I was doing. And so if I don't, if there's no way for me to really ascertain it, um, I'm just going to like not really have a strong opinion on it. I mean, there's people getting killed in the Congo right now. There's people getting killed all over the world. And we don't have opinions on that. We don't know about that. We don't see it. It's on the media. Um, and that's as it should be. I mean, we're not there. You know, we shouldn't be funding it, which I'm sure some CIA cut out is funding it somewhere, causing chaos for their own ends, doing horrific things. But there's evil just locally in Africa and in everywhere in the world, you know, just the, not the CIA, probably be a hell of a lot less of it. But there is there's despots everywhere who do terrible things. And of course, you know, for the victims and the people, you know, regular people suffering from it, of course, you feel terrible about it. But you feel terrible is sort of a general thing, you know, it's not like, you know, a specific thing. You know, it's sort of like, yeah, there's suffering in the world. You don't you know, innocent people, you know that every minute, every hour, there's some innocent person being raped or tortured or killed probably in the world somewhere. And you feel bad about it, but you don't dwell on it. You don't think about it. You don't individually, you know, try to have an opinion on it. You just say, look, for all the people suffering unjustly, like, I hope, you know, I hope that's alleviated. And I hope uh, the people who are doing that are account held to account at some point, but you're not actively going around the world trying to find each thing and, and deal with it. You're just living your life and taking care of your responsibilities. And so like, I see these people getting worked up and like trying to like get involved in this. And I'm just like, it's just not my, I don't have a dog in this fight. Um, so that's just my take on that. I had uh, a couple other things. One is um, there's a guy I follow. I've talked about him before. Zuby. He's kind of become a big, uh, I don't know if you want to call him an influencer. He's a rapper and uh, speaker. And I actually like a lot of his tweets. I think he's smart. Nigerian guy who I think he grew up in the UK and now he lives, I don't know, he's always traveling around the world. Uh, but he uh, he sometimes irks me because he gets a little like, he's very good at the game, at the Twitter game, at the marketing game and the whatever. And it's a little bit 
you know, I don't know. There's something about it that turns me off, but okay. It's a small issue. He's, he's basically a force for the good. In my opinion, he's, he's outspoken. He's pretty based. He has sensible views. Um, but he went on Piers Morgan to, uh, discuss, uh, I forget what he discussed, but it was something he was, you know, saying something about free speech or, or whatever. I can't remember, but anyway, he, uh, He's kind of yucking it up with Piers Morgan, takes like a smiley photo. And a lot of his followers um, were pissed at him, calling him a traitor and insulting him and all this stuff. And he got pissed and he was like, oh, you guys are like children. You're so childish. Like, oh, I can't just go on a show of somebody who has different views than me. Oh, you, you're not willing to go on shows of people you disagree with. It's ridiculous. You have a childlike view. You're just as bad as the wokes. You know, you, you, they won't tolerate any dissent from their views. You're not tolerating dissent from your views. And he's kind of, dunking on them a bit, going off on like how, you know, ridiculous they are. You're just like the other side. But like, I think he was being disingenuous. I think that was kind of bullshit. I think he, you know, Piers Morgan has a big following and Zuby's kind of famous now and he's interviewed Elon Musk and stuff. And he's kind of one of the, you know, influencers or that's kind of a, a whack word, but it is what it is. And he took an opportunity to go on a big platform and show his views. And, and he is an articulate, smart guy, Zuby. But Pierce Morgan during COVID was one of the guys who was like very aggressively for persecuting the vaccinated, the unvaccinated. He was really about forcing people to take and coercing people to take the vaccine and was nasty about it. And he had a big platform. When it counted, he, um, you know, he used his influence to ill, to ill ends. And Zuby's yucking it up with him on this thing. And his followers didn't like that. And he was like dismissing them like, kind of like, oh yeah, you're just jealous. Like I'm famous. Like I can talk to whoever I want. Yeah. You can talk to whoever you want. Of course you can. And it's not, a, and they were trying to make like a, he's making like a free speech issue. Of course you can. Nobody's saying it should be illegal for you to talk to Piers Morgan, but it diminishes you. Like, don't you want accountability for the people who just, you know, pe the people with influence, especially, I mean, pretty much everybody who was like, you should be in a camp. You're an anti-vaxxer, all these fucking assholes. Um, and there were many like, you know, in the, in the fantasy industry, I'm like, I would never deal with those people. Like, I would never respect them. And when I see people associating with them, I don't think they should be reported for associated with them or, you know, they, anything bad should happen to them, but I have a lower opinion of them. I'm like, Oh, you have low standards. You um, are willing to hang out and, and shoot the shit with this guy who um, was like a bigoted douchebag when it really mattered, when it, you know, was trying to um, harass and insult and, um, defame people who just didn't want to take Pfizer's chemicals and, and they should be held to account for that. But these guys are mostly small time, the fantasy sports guys. Pierce Morgan is, you know, I don't want to say he's big time. He's just some talking head, but he's got a big following. And for Zuby to sort of, you know, yuck it up with him really is the opposite of holding Pierce Morgan to account. I mean, I think at some point you should just say, Look, Piers Morgan, if he's repentant, if he's contrite, and he ever went out and said, you know what, I was really caught up in this in this mania. I deeply regret um, my contribution to this. The vac, you know, the mRNA shot has caused a lot of harm. And even if it didn't, coercing medicine on people's evil. I see that now. And I I just really am ashamed of the way I behaved. If he said that, fine. You know, people can be forgiven. I mean, the Fauci's and the and the Bidens and the politicians who forced this on people um with to massively ill effect should be prosecuted, you know, worse, you know, the, the worst possible punishment in the law it should be a capital crime, I think, to violate the Geneva Con Con Convention, the um, Nuremberg Code like that. But, um, but you know, for the influencers, okay, a, a profound, sincere apology uh, would probably, you know, go a long way to sort of rehabilitating them. But to, to go to an unrepentant Piers Morgan and yuck it up with him is the opposite of holding him accountable. You know, Zuby could be like, I've got a million plus followers. Like, I, I'm not going to lend myself to Piers Morgan, even though it's advantageous for me, um, because he is, he's an unrepentant authoritarian. And, and I want him to realize, like, I won't go on your show until you apologize. I, I won't um, give you the credibility, you know? And, and I feel like he couldn't even see that, that his supporters had a genuine point. Now his supporters, his supporters, I mean, his followers had a genuine point. And his followers, in his defense, were calling him a traitor and cursing him out. And, you know, it's not the best way to approach that. You're just going to trigger somebody. But um, I, I said something to him. He, he's got a million followers. He probably didn't see it. Or if he did see it, this is not the one. He, he doesn't want to respond to the steel man. And a lot of these people 
will respond to the straw man. You know, the people say he shouldn't be allowed to do that or he's a traitor. Too far. He's not a traitor. But I feel like, you know, you get a little celebrity and you advance yourself, you're making a little money, and then you start to justify stuff like that. You know, it starts to you start to find justifications for it. And I thought that was kind of weak. And I think it does diminish him. And I felt like it was a low standard and he should have been called out. And his supporters had a point. His followers had a point, but he didn't want to hear it. Um, and so anyway, my, my, I was always like after the Iraq war, I was like, how is Dick Cheney allowed to go in a restaurant? Why is every restaurant owner not like, get the fuck out of here, you scumbag? They still be like, oh, we're so honored, Mr. Cheney, to have you in our restaurant because he's important, you know? But like, maybe he'll never be prosecuted for war crimes, but individually you can... Be like, fuck you. I'm not going to like serve you in my restaurant and go away. And I remember when I was coaching basketball, 1998, LA at the YMCA and OJ's kid was there and OJ came over uh, and, you know, was trying to yuck it up with me on the bench before that, you know, I was watching his kid's game because I was there 10 minutes before my kids were about to play. And he was like elbowing me because he's sitting next to me like, oh, that was a brick. And normally, you know, like five years, you know, 10 years before if OJ were like joking around with me, I would be like thrilled. Like OJ is the man. But he had just murdered his wife and some other dude with a knife a few years ago. I was like, I'm not going to be like yucking it up with like a murderer. Like have some fucking standards. Like otherwise you're just sort of like, you, you know, you're, you're encouraging the lack of accountability. And he wasn't held accountable by the jury, but I still thought he did it. And I just felt like, you know, I'm just some random nobody um, coach of the YMCA basketball team. And, but I'm not going to give you the time of day when you're, did something like that. And why is, why is Zuby who's actually got this fall and got connections giving Pierce Morgan the time of day It's fucking low standards. Don't respect it. You know? And so, um, I said, I said as much, but he doesn't give a fuck. I'm just some small, small time account that follows him. But I mean, it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's dishonorable in my opinion. It's dishonorable. It's not dishonorable to go on there and, and during the segment say, you know, I think it's time for you to account for your uh, role in spreading vaccine misinformation and, and encouraging people and coercing people and discriminating against people. I think, it's, you know, if he said that to him, respect, go on his show and call him out. That'd be great. But that's not what he did. So I think it's a bit, I think it's disreputable. I think it, I think it hurts him. And uh, I have less respect for him. It's just a fact. All right. I think it's gone on long enough. I was working on a, I'm working on a piece for my uh, chrysalis.substack.com on dopamine and sort of a sci-fi type of thing, but I won't get into it now. I just write it because it's gone on almost an hour. Uh, so that's it for now. Till next time.